with support from the Climate Kick Alumni Association. Welcome to The Elephant. For the very first time in the history of Homo sapiens, we are asking people of different cultures in different continents to climate agree. Climate change is a fact. All the evidence suggests climate change is to blame. The coastline of South Florida is going to be pushed considerably CO2 inland. To make food, Our politics. Extreme events will be the new normal. About climate change. Climate change. Climate change. Climate change is to blame. No one is addressing it. Time for talking is gone. This we elephant. need other It is the elephant in the room that we don't want to talk about. Hello, welcome again to the Elephant Podcast. I'm Kevin Canners. I think all of us who have even a slight concern about climate change have by now encountered people, often ones who are related to, who passionately dispute the reality of the problem. Actually, the globe isn't warming, they tell us. Or if it is, humans aren't to blame. And even if you can get them to concede these first two points, it turns out climate change isn't really a problem. We'll adapt, they say. Even if you're somehow not personally close with someone who has a stance, anytime you read an article on climate change online, regardless of the publication, it's one you encounter, at least if you scroll down to the comment section where you'll see a league of people confidently proclaiming climate change is a hoax. Skeptics or deniers might not be a majority of the public, but they're certainly a loud and outspoken sector of society. Maybe you've caught yourself wondering, where is this all coming from? How is it that so many people vehemently believe in an alternative view of reality when the overwhelming majority of scientists agree about all the main facts of climate change? That it's here, it's human-caused, and it's a reason for great concern. Well, it turns out these doubts about the reality of climate change have largely been driven and seeded in society thanks to the deliberate work of a few key people. That's a story that Harvard professor and science historian Naomi Oreskes explores in her book, which she co-wrote with Eric Conway, Merchants of Doubt, How a Handful of Scientists Obscured the Truth on Issues from Tobacco Smoke to Global Warming. Her curiosity into this area was piqued when she began looking into the scientific literature on climate change in 2004. Given the fractious nature of the public debate about climate change, Naomi also expected there to be a lively scientific debate about climate change. But when she actually read the peer-reviewed literature, to her surprise, she found that there virtually was none at all. Not about the fundamentals, that is. Yes, there was a debate about all the details, but in terms of the main facts, that humans are causing climate change and that it's a problem, there was widespread agreement. She wondered then, why was the general public of such a different view than the scientists? She started investigating further. And what she found is that the cause of this doubt landed at the feet of a surprisingly few high-level Cold War scientists who spread doubt about climate change by leaning on their privilege, power, and connections. And this small group of men, people such as Frederick Zeitz, Fred Singer, and Robert Jastrow, just happened to be the same loose-knit group who had cast doubt on other scientific health and environmental concerns of recent times, in things like acid rain, the hole in the ozone layer, and the harms of smoking tobacco. In each case, their basic strategy was to keep the controversy alive by spreading doubt and confusion long after the scientific consensus had been reached. To give you a sense of how they communicated their message, here's a clip of Fred Singer, one of the central people that Naomi Oreskes features in the book, speaking about his views on climate change. Real busy with Dr. Fred Singer this morning. He is a noted atmospheric phys physicist. He's also one of the world's chief skeptics of global warming and here this morning to tell us why. Good morning to you. And you feel like a lot of this global warming is simply hogwash. Uh, well, 
let me put it this way. The real issue is not global warming. The real issue is what is the cause of the warming. And we have to decide whether it's mostly natural or mostly human-caused. So it's plausible that uh, humans could be affecting the climate. And you just have to look at the data. That's what we do. Now, the satellites don't show any warming. Satellites don't show warming? No, they don't show the warming. What Only about the, the polar, surface stations do. What about the polar caps that are melting that people keep bringing that's up? A, that's a detail. We're not concerned. We're mostly concerned about the tropics mm -hmm. because that's where all the weather comes from. But the atmosphere is really complicated, and, you know, the theory doesn't take into account all the things that happen in the atmosphere, like the clouds. They, the models don't cover the clouds. The clouds are really important. Dr. Fred Singer, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. And good luck with your discussions to be here. later today as well. Merchants of Doubt was adopted into a documentary film, which was released last year, directed by Food Inc. Rob Kenner. I reached Naomi Oreskes by Skype. Naomi Oreskes, welcome to The Elephant. Thanks. Nice to be here with you. We're here talking about your book, Merchants of Doubt, where you look into the story behind how a few select people have been able to spread doubt about human-caused climate change. And I, f I want to start off by just asking you how you got interested in the subject. I'm a historian of science. What I work on primarily is the question of how scientists decide that we know something, how they evaluate evidence, how they decide if there's enough evidence to say that something is established scientifically, how they reach consensus, and also how they decide what topics are important to work on and how they obtain funding for those topics. So more than a dozen years ago, I was working on a book on the history of oceanography. I was actually almost done with the book, and the last chapter of the book was going to be about how a group of Cold War oceanographers transitioned from working on ocean acoustic surveillance and missile delivery and other issues related to the Cold War to being focused more on environmental issues. And in the process of writing that final chapter of the book, a book, by the way, which I'm finally finishing now <laughs> after a long detour, I came across the work of a group of scientists who back in the 1950s, at the time of the International Geophysical Year, had said in no uncertain terms that burning fossil fuels puts carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And there was this possibility that that could change the climate. And they thought that was really important, both scientifically for understanding climate dynamics, but also politically and socially, because it could lead to sea level rise and a host of other things which, with which we're now quite familiar. So I was reading these materials from the 1950s, so more than half a century ago. And I was just frankly blown away by the level of discussion, the interest in the issue, and the seriousness with which this group of scientists were taking the question. And so I started digging more deeply into that and realized that the science was much older, much deeper, and much more well-established than most people realized. And that caught you by surprise at the time? Was I surprised? Yeah, well, I was in a way because I'm a professional historian of science. So if anyone should have known this, it might have been me. And I thought, well, if I didn't know this, then obviously most other people don't know it either. And so then I started paying more attention to the whole uh, debate about climate change. And what I came to realize very quickly was that actually in the scientific community, there was no debate. That is to say, there was no debate about the reality of climate change. So I wrote a paper in 2004 that said that, and immediately I became the target of attacks. And it was those attacks, it was me actually becoming a victim of the merchants of doubt, which led me to, to try to figure out, well, well, who are these people? Who are people? Why are they attacking me? Why are, they claim, why are they claiming there's no consensus? You know, what is this all about? And it was that set of questions based on my own, you know, being attacked by these people that then led to the book and now the film Merchants of Doubt. So I want to get into what you actually discovered 
in that journey you went on. But what, what was the, the nature of those initial attacks against you? That I was a Stalinist, that I was a communist, that I was attempting to suppress scientific debate, uh, that I was part of a liberal conspiracy to bring down global capitalism, all very strange uh, things for a historian <laughs> of science to be accused of. And the very tenor of the attacks, it was very hostile, very angry. Um, the tenor of the attacks and also the obvious red-baiting quality of it made it pretty clear that there was something going on that had really nothing, if anything, to do with the science. And so what were your first steps? So you, you're getting attacked, you, you realize there's, there's something curious going on here. What do you do from there? Well, I mean, it wasn't really first steps because that makes it sound more organized than it really was. I mean, two things happened. So one was that um, I, I wrote something for Science Magazine in which I sort of just kind of hinted at the early results that we were, some of the things I was finding that some of the people who were attacking me had previously worked for the tobacco industry and had defended the tobacco industry against the scientific evidence of the harms of tobacco. I thought that was a pretty significant finding. So I wrote something for Science Magazine in which I mentioned that. And Science Magazine then started getting attacked. Uh, and one of the people who we ended up writing about, Fred Singer, wrote a letter to the editor saying that what I was writing was nonsense and threatening to sue Science Magazine if they didn't let him write a rebuttal. Now, in, in actual point of fact, I had said nothing about Fred Singer and no one has any legal or moral right necessarily to defend other people. I mean, you can if you want to try, but there's no legal obligation on the part of any journal to let Fred Singer defend anybody else. And for a variety of other reasons, the magazine didn't publish his letter. But what happened was that the editor came back to me saying, you know, we need more documentation of what you're talking about. So I wrote a memo that turned into a 17-page memo with, you know, chapter and verse references, citations, all the evidence about where this information was coming from. And when I had finished writing that memo, two things happened. I got a phone call from Don Kennedy uh, thanking me and wanting to talk more about what I had learned. And I also realized that I had written the seeds of what, you know, ultimately became a book chapter. So I realized there was a story in this. And around the same time, I w went to a conference on the history of meteorology, a conference who one of the people in the audience there was Eric Conway, who at the time I did not know. And in the Q&A, in the question and answer session, this issue came up. And afterwards, over a beer, Eric came up to me and he said, well, Naomi, you know, some of the people who are attacking you are the same people who attacked Sherry Rowland over the scientific evidence of the ozone hole. And I thought, what, really? The same people who attacked a Nobel laureate, one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century, uh, you know, the man who pretty much saved us from disaster in the case of ozone depletion, that I'm being attacked. You know, my name is being used in the same sentence as Sherry Rowland. So I thought that was pretty, like, weird, but also kind of flattering in a way. <laughs> and so Eric said, yeah, I've got a bunch of stuff I'll send you when we get home, because this conference was in Germany. So a week or so later, Eric sent me a pile of documents, and they showed very, very clearly that what he said was true that it was the exact same people. And very quickly we realized the same people had attacked me, had attacked Sherry Rowland, and had defended the tobacco industry. And so that's when Eric and I started talking and, and began to think there was a story here to be told about a group of people who really were kind of serial contrarians, um, who had systematically attacked science and scientists, and now in this case historians of science, over evidence that documented a real serious threatening harm like ozone depletion or the harms of tobacco or climate change. And these are the people who we ultimately came to call the merchants of doubt. 
So you mentioned Fred Singer. Can you give us a, an idea? Like, who, who are the, the rest of these people? Well, the key finding that we present in the book was that the story begins with a rel- relatively small group of people, a handful of scientists who all have very similar personal biographies. They're all physicists. They all became prominent, successful, and well-known during the Cold War. And they all worked on Cold War weapons, rocketry, and satellite projects on behalf of you know, containing communism, defending the United States, and rose to positions of quite significant power and influence within the American scientific community. So these people, they were all cold warriors, but all very, very anti-communist. They all had a very strong, I would say, both political and personal commitment to the concept of containing communism. And what we discovered, the sort of, you know, that part of the story wasn't really surprising. I mean, we all kind of know about the role of physicists in the Cold War. But what was surprising was this discovery that when the Cold War ended, instead of being happy and retiring, because by this point most of these men were quite senior, you know, in their 70s or, or older, instead of being happy that the West had won the, war, the Cold War, instead they were like generals who can't stop fighting. And so they looked for a new enemy. And the new enemy that they found was environmentalism because they basically believed that environmentalists were watermelons, green on the outside, but red on the inside, that this was a kind of slippery slope to socialism, a backdoor to communism through the means of government regulation of the marketplace. And what we started discovering was they had written numerous letters, articles, various things where they had actually made this argument. If you allow the government to control the marketplace and say ban tobacco, or if you allow the government to ban the chemicals that cause ozone depletion, or if you allow the government to intervene and control carbon emissions, this is a step in the direction of centralized planning of the economy. And actually, of all the people, Fred Singer, the one I mentioned, is the one who said this most explicitly in, mo- in the most, you know, the most times, the most different places. But you see it either said explicitly or suggested in the writing of all of these other people as well. So they're very, very hostile to environmentalism. And so they began to attack the scientific evidence that demonstrated the harms of environmental damage like ozone depletion or climate change or the harms of the public health harms of something like tobacco. One thing you you point out that I I found really telling is that, you know, as a historian, they almost, they tell you the answer of why they're against it. You know, instead of having discussions about the science, what they're talking about instead in their own uh, correspondence is often uh, the implications of, of what would happen if this was true. Exactly. And so we we like the phrase implicatory denial. They're in denial because they don't like the implications. Because if climate change is true, and we say this in our book, and Naomi Klein has picked up on this idea very strongly in her recent book, This Changes Everything. If climate change is real, then this is the greatest market failure ever seen. That's what Nicholas Stern has said, the you know former chief economist of the World Bank, not exactly a communist. So this is a colossal market failure because energy is at the root of all economic activity. And it means that we have to find some way of controlling carbon emissions. And how do we do that without controlling the marketplace? Now, I don't necessarily take the view that Naomi Klein does, that this is, does mean the end of capitalism. But the irony of this story is that actually her conclusion is the same as theirs. So in this case, the far left and the far right come together in the same spot. Both of them conclude that this is the, means the end of capitalism. For Naomi Klein, that's a good thing. But for the merchants of doubt, that was a bad thing. And so... The difference, of course, is that for Naomi Klein, she doesn't deny climate change. She says, yes, it's real and we have to fix capitalism or do something different. But the merchants of doubt say capitalism is the greatest system ever invented. Our political, economic, and religious freedom 
is tied to capitalism. Without capitalism, we have no freedom. This is kind of the key intellectual move they make. Therefore, we cannot accept any threat to capitalism. Therefore, we don't believe the scientific evidence. We don't believe these people, and we will fight it, and we will deny it. And that's the kind of key move that's intellectually, I would say, illegitimate, right? Because you cannot like the implications of something but still recognize that it's true and you need to act on it. I mean, if you discover that your husband is cheating on you, the best solution is not to pretend that it's not happening, but to confront and figure out, can this be fixed? Can you discuss it with your husband? Or maybe your marriage has failed, right? I mean, these are things that we come to grips with all the time in ordinary life. And we all know that if you deny the problem, it doesn't make it go away. So, but, so instead of acknowledging that this was a real problem and trying to think through what would be the remedies? Are there ways to reform capitalism? Are there market-based mechanisms? And of course, some people did do that. Many people did do that, said, well, look, we could fix this with a carbon tax. That's what Al Gore said. We could fix this with an emissions trading system. That's what my colleague Robert Stavins at the Kennedy School says. So many sensible people said, okay, we do have a problem, but we think we can fix it. But what the emergence of doubt did was to deny the existence of a problem at all. So how, how did a group of, you know, just a small handful of men manage to have so much influence? Well, you know, it's a very interesting question. And of course, one of the things I find interesting about that question is that, particularly in the United States, none of us have trouble believing that a few great men can do great things, or even one great man, like, you know, Abraham Lincoln. So we, we very much believe in the power of individuals when it comes to doing good things, but we're much more re- resistant to believing in the power of individuals when it comes to doing bad things. So the first thing I wanted to say is small numbers of individuals can do tremendous damage if they set their minds to it and if they're influential and powerful and have money. And so that's what this story is really about. So you begin with a group of people who are very influential because of what they did in their Cold War. They have the ear of senators and congressmen and generals and admirals and heads of corporations and foundations, and they use that. And they, so they exploit a set of contacts they have, also media contacts, They have a lot of contacts with the media. One of the key people in our story is Robert Jastrow, an astrophysicist who um, was very active in the early years of the U.S. space program and appeared on television many times explaining the Apollo missions. So he he was a bit of a celebrity. He had also written a number of popular books, very successful popular books. So he had lots and lots of media contacts. So these men exploit their media contacts and they exploit their political contacts. They get on television. They get into the pages of the Wall Street Journal. They get quoted in the New York Times. And they get invited to the White House. There's one particular episode we talk about where they actually get invited to the administration of George H.W. Bush to brief them on climate change. And this clearly has an impact on Bush administration. So they have influence because of who they are. But in addition, the other key part of the story, of course, is money. So what happens in in the late 1980s when the story begins, it's really not about money for these men. It is really about politics and their own vision of what how they think they're defending freedom. But very quickly that changes. By the early 1990s, the fossil fuel industry has realized that they're potentially in trouble. And the fossil fuel industry reacts very, very strongly to the Rio summit in 1992, and then begins a very strong campaign to fight the Kyoto Protocol to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And so they organize the Global Climate Coalition, but they also begin to give money to a whole set of think tanks that are supposedly independent but in fact are now funding fossil fuel money. And one of these key think tanks is the George C. Marshall Institute, which is the focus of our book and which is where these particular emergence of doubt got started. 
So by the mid-1990s, you see a whole network of think tanks, including but not limited to the Marshall Institute, but includes the Cato Institute, the American Enterprise Institute, the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And what they all have in common is that they all promote free market uh, economic policies, the idea of free enterprise being a kind of foundation stone of the American way of life, and nearly all of them, as far as we are able to document, are also receiving money from the fossil fuel industry. Can you tell me about the connection to the the tobacco industry fight and what they learned, these these merchants of doubt, from that, that fight to sow doubt about tobacco causing cancer? The tobacco connection is key on two levels. One, it's key because it tells us that this is not a principled scientific debate, that this is part of a pattern of defending damaging products and activities. So that's that's kind of key intellectually. But in terms of the actual practices, the strategies and tactics, what we were able to show in our book was that what these men did was to actually take the strategy and tactics that had been developed by the tobacco industry and apply it directly to the climate change debate. And so we demonstrated two things. First of all, many of the kinds of claims they make are virtually identical. There are sentences you could take directly out of the debate on tobacco control where the tobacco industry says, well, the science regarding tobacco is not settled. There's no consensus about the harms of tobacco. So just replace the word climate change, uh, you know, replace the word tobacco with climate change, and now you have the playbook for climate change denial. So it's exactly the same pattern. But in addition, it's also some of the same people. So some of the key people that we studied, we were able to show, to demonstrate, that they had also worked for or with the tobacco industry. So one of the key uh, players there is Frederick Seitz. He was the original chairman of the board of the Marshall Institute. He was a very prominent physicist. He was president of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences in the early 1960s. But later in life, he took a very, he was always very conservative politically, but later in life, he took a very hardcore right-wing pro-business anti-regulation stance. And he began to work for the tobacco industry. And from 1979 to 1985, he ran a program for the R.J. Reynolds Tobacco Corporation, whose purpose was to fund scientists to do distracting research. And what we mean by that is to do scientific research, it really was research, but the purpose of it was not to actually better understand the harms of tobacco. The purpose was to distract attention from the harms of tobacco and focus on other things. So for example, he funded research on the risks associated with asbestos exposure. So that if you had a a court case in which someone had lung cancer, which they were claiming was due to their smoking, the industry defense would say, well, have you ever been exposed to asbestos? And in some cases, these people had. And then they would bring an expert on the stand to say, well, asbestos also causes lung cancer. So therefore, there's no way to know whether or not this man's lung cancer was caused by asbestos or cigarette smoking. And they would do the same thing with radon. And they would do things like that with stress, the relation of heart disease to stress. And one of the ironies is that some of the research they funded was actually rather interesting. I mean, the relationship of heart disease to stress is an interesting problem. They also funded research on prions. So they created a network of friendly scientists, scientists who were indebted to them, scientists who were grateful to them, who would be willing to appear in court in order to raise doubt, reasonable doubt, in court about the harms of tobacco. And so they wrote, at one point, there's a very famous memo that was written where one tobacco industry executive says, doubt is our product because it's the best way to compete with the body of fact. And that is kind of in a nutshell what this strategy is all about. And so that's why that became our title, Merchants of Doubt. If you can create doubt in people's minds about the problem, 
then people are not receptive to spending money or making an effort or changing their lifestyle um, to fix a problem that you know might not actually even exist. And of course, some of their ad campaigns said explicitly that. There was one climate change campaign in the 90s that explicitly ran the slogan, how much are you willing to pay to solve a problem that might not even exist? And I, there's another quote that says, you know, don't lie, you don't need to. Exactly. Don't lie, you don't have to. I love that memo. And that's exactly right. I mean, this is the, the sort of evil genius of the whole thing. You don't have to lie. You just have to cast doubt. Because if you can persuade people that we don't really know, then people say, oh, okay, well, we don't really know. We should just let scientists do more research. And so it's a very effective delaying tactic. And of course, many people, even evil people, are still uncomfortable lying. And many of us, I think, have very sensitive lie detector you know, sensors. I think many of us can tell when people are giving us the runaround or, as John Stewart said, memory the other night, you know, if it <laughs> smells bad, it probably is bad. Right? But, but if you're not lying, if you just say, well, you know, there's a lot we don't know about tobacco. There's a lot we don't know about the mechanisms of uh, cancer development. There's a lot we don't know about atmospheric dynamics. All of these, fa- all of these statements are true. And they're particularly effective if you then get a scientist in a debate, because this is another part of the strategy. Get a scientist to debate you on television or on the radio. And if I work for the fossil fuel industry, I say, well, there's a lot we don't know about atmospheric dynamics. And then the scientist says, that's true. But, and then he goes on into some complicated explanation of how he thinks we really do know there's global warming. But the basic idea that we don't know a lot has now been planted. And the scientist has agreed with it. So the person in the audience hears the scientists say, oh, there's a lot we don't know. And for many people, that's what they walk away with. They walk away with that impression of confusion, of doubt, of uncertainty, and therefore the idea that, yes, we know the climate is changing, and yes, we know it's caused by human activity, and yes, we've known this for a long time, that message does not come across clearly. Yeah, and, and even even more to the point, it seems that by even having the debate, they've already won in a way, right? By, by taking up half the screen and putting it in the frame that there is a debate to be had, it seems like that would be enough. Exactly. And that's one of the points we bring out very strongly in the film, where we actually have visuals where we show how this works, you know, visually. As you said, the screen is 50-50. So even if you heard no words, the impression you would be give, get just by seeing the screen, you know, in a hotel lobby, in an airport would be, oh, there's a debate about climate change. And the caption below, you know, the Fox News caption will say debate about climate change. So you, the viewer, sees debate about climate change. So this is one reason why I and others have really stressed in the scientific community that scientists should never debate climate change deniers, that the minute you even agree to that framework, you've lost. Yeah. I mean, another point you you make that I, I think is a really interesting one is that whenever anyone's creating doubt about climate change or or any of the other problems, to be frank, it, they're telling a story that we want to hear. It's more comfortable to have the idea in our heads, well, maybe there isn't a problem, maybe we don't have to change. Can you just talk about the role that that comfort, the, the psychological comfort plays in um, the ability for them to, to be so successful in spreading this message? Yes, I think that's, I think that's right. And at the end of Merchants of Doubt, we, we essentially say that because the end of the book is a place where you can say things you believe are true but can't prove. <laughs> so I'm not a psychologist, and I can't prove that one of the reasons this works is because it is a comforting message. But I think all of us intuitively know that that's true, that, you know, there's a, I mean, I think the whole term an inconvenient truth is a very, it's a very brilliant phrase because that's what this is about. These are about truths that are more than inconvenient. They're unsettling. There's a wonderful cartoon I saw one time of people lined up at two movie theaters, 
one movie is showing an inconvenient truth, the other is showing reassuring lies, <laughs> and all the people are flocking to go see the reassuring lies, right? So we all want to be reassured, and as you said, we, many of us like the way we live. We don't necessarily want to change it. Change is take, makes an effort. Even if in the long run the change would be better for us, we might actually be happier or healthier. But, I mean, lots of studies do show that, that people experience change as a threat. They worry that change means loss. So, and anyone who's ever run an organization has had this experience. I mean, I had this experience when I was a university administrator. It's very hard to persuade people of the value of change, even if in the long run it will make things better. So if you can tell people, oh, everything's fine, you don't have to change, you don't have to worry, just go on doing what you're doing, you know, most people would prefer to hear that message. It's only a very small handful of people who, you know, you know, want to think, oh, God, the world's a wreck, we have to fix it kind of thing. So, so I think that is part of why this works. And, and as we said at the end of the book, I mean, we would like climate change not to be real. You know, climate change is a bad news story. It's a very, very bad news story on many levels. I think the recent Papal encyclical, you know, brings out a whole additional set of ways and means in which climate change is a bad news story in terms of morality and justice, you know, things that scientists haven't really talked about that much because it's outside of their domain. So this is a very serious bad news story, and nobody likes bad news. So it's much easier either just to ignore it or to blame the messenger and say, oh, well, those people, they're just some part of some liberal conspiracy or they're liberal alarmists or they're hysterical females. So, so if these people had been on the wrong side of so many different debates, whether it's tobacco or uh, the ozone layer or acid rain, why did they still have any credibility? Is it just because no one bothered to to connect the dots of, of their previous arguments? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've often asked myself that question. I think that's right. And Eric Conley and I have talked about this a lot. I think we feel like the most important contribution we've made here is connecting the dots. Because when you just see one of these in isolation, you might think, well, you know, how do we really know that CFCs are depleting stratospheric ozone? Or how do we really know for sure whether or not smoking is hazardous? You know, my Aunt Mildred smoked two packs a day and lived to be 90, right? Lots of people have um, counterexamples like that. But when you connect the dots, when you see the pattern, when you see it's the same story over and over again and the same people in some cases, then you realize, okay, this is not about the science. And, you know, the best example of this I think we have right now is the New York Times recently reported that the Coca-Cola company is now funding scientists to argue that, you know, it's fine to drink Coke because the science regarding diet is unsettled. And in fact, as long as you exercise, you know, you can eat whatever you want. That's a slightly crude version of what they're saying, but that's the basic message. Now, that flies in the face of huge amounts of scientific evidence that proves it's very difficult to lose weight through exercise alone. Um, and even if you could exercise seven or eight hours a day, which almost nobody has time for, you still need to eat healthy and nutritious food. And something like Coca-Cola is just completely empty calories. There's no way that Coca-Cola is good for you. I mean, you might, it might not be, I mean, it's just not good for you, right? So, and reading this article, you know, it's the same thing over and over again. The science isn't settled. We have a debate. Experts disagree. They're funding scientists for hire who are making their case. Um, and... In the article that the New York Times wrote about it, they actually quote someone saying, well, these guys are, are essentially merchants of doubt. And I thought, oh, well, that's kind of nice that our language is now, we've now named this thing. This thing is a real phenomenon. It exists, and we've given it a name. And that we didn't have the name for it before. And when you have a name, it makes it a lot easier to talk about something because now you don't have to have the whole 40-minute podcast all over again. You could say, oh, here's another example. Look at this. They're selling doubt. Here we go again. 
Now, all three of the, the main characters that you mentioned in the book, Robert Jastrow, William Nuremberg, and, and Frederick Seitz, they, they've passed on, but you, you just mentioned like Coca-Cola or these other companies will recruit new new players, new scientists to help promote their message. Do we know anything about the process of, of how they find people who are open to their arguments? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I think it's different in different cases, but we do know a little bit about it. I've, I've received lots and lots of emails from people who have told me stories about how people try to recruit them. So one of the things that we know happens is that um, industry or think tanks will send people to scientific meetings. And if someone gives a, a talk at a scientific meeting that suggests that maybe they're a little bit skeptical of the mainstream view, maybe they work in an area that's legitimate but could be used as a kind of distraction, um, these people will be approached. So we know that in the case of tobacco, the toba tobacco industry was very, very vigilant about keeping track of what was going on in the scientific community. And if they got wind of somebody who, was, who say, was saying, there was a famous case involving a scientist, a very prominent scientist who worked on asbestos, who believed, honestly, I think, legitimately, that many of the cancers that were being blamed on tobacco were actually caused by asbestos. So the tobacco industry approached him, recruited him, started promoting his work, started paying him, started sending him to conferences. So it's about finding people who, for one reason or another, might be receptive, either because they legitimately have a view that could be useful to the industry, or maybe they're receptive because they're lonely. I mean, I've certainly seen this. Scientists who are sort of lonely, isolated, who feel that their work hasn't got the attention that they think it deserves. So the industry is always on the lookout for people like this. And if a person gives a talk in a national meeting where they suggest that, you know, they feel their work hasn't got the attention it, it deserves, like they work on some aspect of climate change that says, well, you know, maybe instead of working on greenhouse gas emissions, they work on you know, soil management practices or something, the industry will go up to those people after they've given their talk and they'll say, well, w would you be interested in coming to a conference? You know, my think tank is organizing a conference on the diverse causes of climate change. And often they'll present it as a legitimate scientific meeting. And this person might say, oh, well, I work on the diverse causes of climate change. And then they get sort of drawn into the orbit. And then the next thing you know, they might be being invited. Well, would you be willing to go on Fox News and have a debate? And again, you can see how this begins to work. So let's say this person does work on soil management practices. And that's legitimate because that's a real thing. But now they go on TV and some scientists are saying, you know, most of climate change is being driven by greenhouse gas emissions from burning fossil fuels. And he says, well, but my research shows that we've really neglected this issue of soil management practices. And again, he's not lying. He's telling the truth. Maybe we really have neglected that. But it's kind of a sideshow. But the public who's listening doesn't really get that. And what they don't understand is, yeah, it's true, soil management practices are relevant, and we probably should pay some attention to that. But it's still not the main driver of climate change. What about the Internet's role in all this? I, I've heard you mention that, that that has played a role, you think, in, in allowing these lies and, and misinformation to propagate. Yeah, well, again, I'm not an expert on the Internet, but I think it's pretty obvious to anyone who's Googled climate change that one of the things the Internet has done is it's made all these contrarian arguments much easier to get hold of. So I get email all the time from someone who will tell me I'm wrong. Again, just today I got one of these. I'm wrong because there is no climate change. And then they'll give me a set of bullet points. And often they're verbatim the same as other emails I've received the day before, the week before, the month before, the year before, because they're pulling these things off the internet. And so it's very easy now for confirmation bias to really dominate people's media landscape. You can go to the internet and if you're a climate change skeptic, it's extremely easy now to find 
um, websites that will reinforce your skeptical views. And that would not have been true, say, 40 years ago, when if you wanted scientific information, you know, you either had to go to the Encyclopedia Britannica or, you know, you had to, you know, get a pamphlet from the U.S. Weather Service or something. So the sort of ease of access to information has also become ease of access to disinformation. I mean, I, I read a short article that you had uh, maybe online, uh, or I don't know if it's in the print version, but uh, in the New York Times about uh, the case for divestment. And I looked down to the comments and the, the very first one was was exactly what you're describing, like saying there has been no warming. Uh, why won't you like answer this question? Uh, is it frustrating for you as a scientist to to be confronted constantly with this sort of alternative universe where, where sort of facts don't don't matter? Um, yeah, well, of course. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting you cited that example, because I, I read that one as well. Um, and of course, you know, this is a classic disinformation scheme, because the scientific evidence is clear that the warming has not stopped. There's no pause, there's no hiatus. And yet that has been so pushed in the last few years by the forces of denial that it's now out there in the mainstream, very hard to um, refute. And again, someone says there's no warming, you say, well, actually, that's not true. It's a statistical artifact. It's a misrepresentation based on cherry picking the data, you know, all basic classical tricks that these guys have been using for years. But again, very hard to make that argument. So is it frustrating? Well, of course. Um, you know, I, you know, my feeling about all of this has evolved. In the beginning, it was just weird, right? In the beginning, I thought, where is this stuff coming from, right? So in the beginning, it was actually motivating to try to understand it. Then I got angry because I began to realize how much damage the merchants of doubt had done because the person who's writing that comment, the person who's writing that comment might be a merchant of doubt. They may actually be a paid troll of some industry group because we know that happens as well. But they also might be an honest, ordinary citizen who has been misled by the merchants of doubt. So, so now I feel that this is just proof of the damage that's been done. It's proof that this really matters because now we see the way in which it's influenced public opinion and how we have people reading the New York Times, which we would normally think would be relatively educated people, who have now been completely persuaded by a totally false claim. Well, it's a, a fascinating, if at times, a frustrating story that, that you've told both in the, the book and the film. It's uh, one I, I highly recommend. Naomi Oreski, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. It's nice speaking with you. Thanks for your work. That was my conversation with professor and historian of science, Naomi Oreskes. She's the author, along with Eric Conway, of the book, Merchants of Doubt. So we heard from Naomi Oreskes the story of how a few Cold War scientists were so successfully able to manufacture doubt about climate change, especially early on in the fight. But climate change denial is as active as ever, and now involves some of the richest and most powerful individuals and corporations on Earth, individuals and corporations who fund the work of skeptics and help spread their message. Perhaps most important of these funders are David and Charles Koch, or the Koch brothers, spelled K-O-C-H. Tied to the fossil fuel industry through their company, Coke Industries, together the brothers are worth more than $80 billion and have become a key source of funding for scientists, networks, and think tanks spreading doubt about climate change. They also have enormous influence over the Republican Party. In fact, in parallel to the very public race occurring among Republican presidential hopefuls, there's also a very private race to court the Koch brothers' support. In what has become widely known as the Koch primary, leading candidates such as Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, and Scott Walker were practically summoned to speak to the Koch brothers and a small group of Koch-allied donors at a private summit they held in California. 
The reason the brothers have such pull is that they have announced plans to spend upwards of $900 million on the next election cycle. So perhaps no wonder, given their stance on climate change, that the list of prominent Republicans who believe the science on the issue has dwindled to almost none. Kurt Davies has been investigating the Koch brothers and the hidden relationships between the funders and scientists who form the backbone of the climate denial networks for years. He currently runs the Climate Investigation Center and previously held positions at Greenpeace, where he spearheaded research into the Koch brothers' funding of climate denial, as well as Exxon and other fossil fuel interests. Kurt Davies has been quoted or featured in the New York Times, The Guardian, the BBC, and CNN, among other outlets. I reached Kurt Davies by Skype. Well, Kurt Davies, welcome to The Elephant. Thank you. So in this episode, we're taking a look at the merchants of doubt, what Naomi Oreskes calls the merchants of doubt, the people who and institutions who have purposefully spread doubt and tried to block any meaningful action from being done on climate change. And I'd say there's, there's two main parts in this. It's the, the people who fund it and the individual spokespeople or scientists who help spread the message. And I want to focus on the funder side primarily, and specifically on the one example of the Koch brothers. Now, I I think they've become better known in in recent years, but especially outside of America, I'd say the Koch brothers are still largely unknown to most people. Who are the Koch brothers and, and why do they matter? Well, they're, they're extremely rich uh, American businessmen whose father made a, a lot of money on a technology to crack oil, essentially distilling oil into components we, we can use. He actually stole that technology from another company and then went out and made his own company uh, and started doing this, building out this company in the, in the U.S., bequeathed it to his two sons, who are now the richest men in America and together among the richest people in the world. Their estimated worth is something around $40 billion each. So they're very influential and they're super ideological. Their, their ideology is a pure uh, free market anti-government ideology. In fact, you know, in their earliest years, David Koch ran against uh, Ronald Reagan on the libertarian ticket in 1980. And his platform at that point was to abolish half the government, like to shut down half of the agencies of the government. Uh, Their current, one of their current favorite candidates, um, Scott Walker of Wisconsin, is actually proposing to shut down the Environmental Protection Agency. That that was that'd be one of the first things he does if he gets elected as the Republican candidate for president. So they've maintained this um, very anti-government rhetoric. They've built a network of front groups that do the work for them and with them, and they're uh, they're trying to change this country. So you you mentioned they're they're involved with oil and gas. Can you give us a scale of? the types of different holdings they have and types of different involvements they have within this industry? It's actually very hard to do because they are a private company, so they don't have shareholders, and therefore they don't have much public disclosure of their various interests and their various holdings. They have uh, have had historically a heavy interest in oil pipelines, for example. They own some oil refineries that are big oil refineries. They do a, a heavy business in the heavy oil from Canada that is the tar sands oil and other oil from Canada that takes a specific type 
type of refinery. It's a you know a harder process than some of the other types of crude. So they have that technology. They do a lot of commodities trading. So they trade in futures and they they trade in just about everything. Uh, they also own Invista, which is a huge chemical company that makes fabrics like Lycra and Spandex. In fact, there are several factories in Germany that are Invista factories. So they have assets all over the world that they've acquired. And they're diversifying, and they are not just an oil uh, company or an oil mercantile company. So that's the kind of business they are. They're they're very private, very um, secretive. In fact, years ago they used to call themselves the biggest company nobody's ever heard of. Uh, so it's it's come out in the past five years. They have gone from invisible to very visible. I'll give you an example. When we went, when we had that initial report before we published it, we went to New York and went to multiple prominent news organizations and said we had done this background dig on the Koch brothers, on David Koch, and multiple very important reporters said who. And it's the richest man in New York at that point. Uh, they didn't know who he was. They didn't know what his agenda was. And he, there he was sitting in Manhattan funding the ballet, uh, you know, fairly prominent at the tuxedo party circuit. And they didn't know who he was. So it took a lot to unveil them. And now, now they're trying to do a PR campaign to soften their own image. And they've hired uh, a lot of very top-level PR professionals. And they've gone on a... Uh, killing them with kindness circuit at where they're inviting media to their meetings. They're doing interviews. Suddenly they're, um, they're playing it in a very different way than they were five years ago. So they're, they're both collectively super rich. They're connected to the fossil fuel industry, even though that's, that's not their entire base for their operations. And they're also, as you mentioned, strident libertarians. Do we have a sense of, of what motivates them primarily in, in opposing climate change regulation? Is it ideology? Is it personal interests, financial interests? Do we have a sense of that? It's the it's the ideal question. I mean, no, we don't know which one it is, or and I think the answer is both. I think they do have, they definitely have financial interest in keeping the oil industry from being regulated and keeping fossil fuels from being regulated in any way. They also have a deep ideological mission, which is against government regulation and against government subsidy of other forms of energy. So they're running very big operations to kill renewable energy, even though they don't have a stake in it, and it really doesn't threaten their business model at all, simply because they think renewable energy is what they call a rent-seeking industry that is only viable with government subsidies, which is in part true. That's, uh, you know, solar, you know, the story from in Germany, without good government policies enabling renewables to compete, it doesn't get off the ground because the other forms of energy are have been subsidized for the past 100 or 50 years and have uh, accumulated subsidies. And while they acknowledge that, they still are fundamentally against all government intervention in the marketplace. They have a, a religious belief almost that the marketplace should be unfettered by regulation and that somehow the market itself will solve all problems. It's really a, uh, an ideological uh, belief. In fact, Charles Koch's written books about this. So that's the harder thing to compete with. It's not a simple story of you know an ExxonMobil that really doesn't want people to believe climate change because they sell oil and they know that if we catch on, we'll stop using as much oil. It's a deeper philosophical and ideological uh, opponent we're dealing with here. Now, I want to talk about the actual mechanism about how uh, they go about spreading skepticism. 
So say you and I are, are David and Charles Koch, and, and you know, we, we really don't want any action taken on climate change. What then do we do? How, how does the, the actual process work from there? Well, that's a good question. I mean, they, I think what, the way I look at it is they have built an infrastructure of these organizations, the Cato Institute, the Heritage Foundation, uh, Heartland Institute, multiple organizations that have nice sounding names and seem innocuous or seem like just your average think tank infrastructure. They use these organizations to produce the intellectual backbone of their arguments. So they'll produce a report about an issue. Then they use other organizations to vend that same report into the political arena. So they operate, they have a think tank that's the ideology and the sort of intellectual property. Then they have a political organization that goes to a politician and says, you really need to do something about this. Here's the report that says, and then they operate with this thing called the American Legislative Exchange Council, for example, who works directly with state legislators to change laws, to write new laws. And all these things together, uh, along with their political operations, their lobbying arms, form sort of a network of political action, intellectual thought, and field team that is able to change the dialogue. I'll give you one example. In the 2008 elections, in the run-up to when Obama was elected, and then in the 2010 elections, they ran a field campaign at the state level to make incoming politicians into the, the, the House and Senate pledge to do nothing on climate change, take a pledge that they would not take action on climate change. And they had uh, dozens of incoming freshman senators and, and representatives who had pledged that climate change was an issue that, you know, they would block, essentially block. And that became, you had to sign that pledge in order to be endorsed by the Koch apparatus. And therefore you signed the pledge and you got elected. You came to Washington and you were never going to have your mind changed about climate change. So that's one way. And that was a direct political effort. The other really insidious way that they operate is through these you know, sort of quasi-intellectual think tanks and they, they'll put out extensive reports to undermine um, policy. So one example I'm working on right now is something called the National Black Chamber of Commerce, which sounds like it represents the interests of African-American corporations when in fact the members are Chevron, Exxon, Coke, and that organization, National Black Chamber of Commerce, has since the 90s put out reports, essentially the same report over and over again, saying any climate policy will limit uh, the availability and uh, uh, increase the price of energy and inordinately hurt poor people, minorities, people with lower income. Good afternoon, Chair Cap Capitol, Ranking Member Carper, and distinguished members of the subcommittee. My name is Harry Alford. I'm President and CEO of the National Black Chamber of Commerce. I'm here today to testify about the Environmental Protection Agency's proposal to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants and the potential impacts of those proposed regulations on energy costs. In particular, I would like to focus on the potential adverse economic and employment impacts of the Clean Power Plan on low-income groups and minorities. According to a recent study commissioned by the National Black Chamber of Commerce, the Clean Power Plan would increase black poverty by 23% and Hispanic poverty by 26%. And that message, as you can imagine, is 
a, a real winner because nobody wants to hurt minorities. So, but it's a corporate message. It doesn't have anything to do with actual black business interests or actual interests of African-American communities, for example. In fact, those communities are hurt more by climate change, by air pollution, by every environmental insult uh, down the road. So the Cokes, apparently, we just discovered the Cokes are also funding the National Black Chamber of Commerce. Exxon has given them nearly a million dollars. They've put out all these reports dating back to the, to the mid-90s. They've been doing reports that, are, that serve then as testimony on the Hill that are placed in newspapers as op-eds or as articles. And they seed this notion out that the climate policy now the clean power plan, the Obama, the best thing Obama's done and the thing that Obama's team is taking to Paris, the clean power plan, the National Black Chamber of Commerce is trying to attack that as harmful to people of color and, and minorities. In fact, Obama took that on directly in his speech announcing the clean power plan and, and countered them not by name. So uh, now we're working to show uh, what they've been doing for so long. And th those are just a couple examples of Basically, the you know we've tracked nearly eighty million dollars from the Cokes, thirty million from Exxon, and that's the tip of the iceberg on how much money has been invested in these organizations, whose at least part of their work is to stop climate solutions. When reading up on it, the think tanks are such a great way of going about it because obviously, if Exxon or or the Koch brothers came out with a a study uh, themselves that said you know climate change not really that much of a problem. You know, no, no one in the press would give it much credence, but if it comes through something that seems like it has some intellectual capital to it, suddenly it has that weight or it might be covered. Exactly. And we know that this has been deliberate. There's you know, one very uh, strong document that everybody's talked about, but not, a lot of people have not heard about. It's a 1998 American Petroleum Institute. It's called the Global Climate Science Communications Plan. And it was, it was leaked uh, and eventually front page of the New York Times, revealing a multi-million dollar, multi-year campaign to vend uncertainty. And they talk about victory will be achieved when reporters, when teachers, when policymakers talk about uncertainty on climate science. Uh, they talk about funding channels to be sent from trade associations through these think tanks and that they, those think tanks would then prop up scientists to say something different than the scientific consensus that was taking hold in 1998. And they really felt like they were losing after Kyoto, after, you know, suddenly there was a, a compulsory treaty being born. So, you know, we know, we have evidence that they have been, it's been a conscious act to use these think tanks as vehicles in what we call the climate denial machine. And I think it's important here, especially for your viewers or, or listeners to understand that, you know, climate denial is much more nuanced than just denying the fact that there is climate change. In fact, you know, in fact, there are very few people or organizations who are flat out denying the existence of a human fingerprint on the climate at this point. It's changed into, well, it's not so bad, or why would we upset the economy to solve something that we're still speculating about, you know, stressing uncertainty. But we define climate denial as and I said this to The Guardian recently, and somehow it came out right, uh, anyone who is obstructing or delaying or derailing policy steps in line with the, the scientific consensus. So that if you believe the scientific consensus, the IPCC, that says we need to take rapid steps to decarbonize the economy, anything that obstructs that is denying 
the science, denying the, the conclusions of the scientific community. Uh, so it doesn't mean just denying the facts. Recently, Charles Koch has been interviewed and he says, well, I don't, you know, I think there may be something, but it's not as serious. You know, they're sort of hedging, which is a very interesting trend, you know, going from being silent on the issue to more of a stance of techno fix, you know, it may be a problem, but we'll fix it with technology. And now sort of acknowledging it a little bit more, while they have trained their political machine to be much more of a flat-out denial message, and they're you know, teaching people across the country that the EPA is this fascist uh, you know, organization trying to kill their jobs, and that climate change is a mythology perpetrated by Al Gore. Uh, they're, I think they know, they're smart people. They both went to MIT, they're scientists by training. Uh, they know full well that something's going on, and I think they're, uh, that's where the deepest kernel of uh, conflict is. So we've been talking about the Koch brothers. Uh, you also mentioned Exxon. Are they a big player in this? Or, or maybe more broadly, who, who are the other major players in, in the financial side of this skepticism game? Yeah, I mean, this is part of the trick is figuring out who's funding all of these voice boxes. You know, we've talked about how the, the think tanks are a very convenient way for the corporations to get their message out without having their fingerprints attached to it. What we did, we had a project uh, that I started 10 years ago called Exxon Secrets, started at Greenpeace, exxonsecrets.org was intended to show these financial linkages between Exxon's money and these climate denial uh, voices and you know institutions and individuals who are on TV all over the world saying something, uh, saying that climate change is not a problem and, and shouldn't be dealt with. When we started connecting the dots and having reporters say, you know, from the Exxon-funded think tank, uh, Exxon shied away. You know, the the, the parenthetical um, Exxon-funded attached to the think tank didn't work for them as well. So Exxon stopped spending money in public on a lot of these groups around 2006, 2007, 2008, after being fairly well shamed about it and being unveiled. Other than that, we have very little intelligence on the big corporate funders. There are multiple chains of money that's invisible or dark money that roll through laundering operations here in the U.S., other NGOs that are set up to bring money in and then send money out. Um, so there's, I think we don't know the half of it, but we know an awful lot about where they're getting their money. I think ultimately summing it up, the, the objective of these organizations is delay and they can get delay, uh, delay policy solutions and delay being regulated by uh, slowing down the machine. And they slow down the machine by, by causing doubt on the science, by causing doubt around the policies, by throwing you know, sticks in the spokes of the, the wheels of the policy arena. And they've done that very effectively for 25 years. And I, I, I don't think it can be underestimated how much they've slowed us down from reacting. I mean, we can point to numerous campaigns going back to 1990 uh, that have been directly aimed at slowing down the world's response on this. Let's talk about one specific example that, that you helped uncover. Uh, a few months ago, and that's uh, Willie Soon. Can you explain who Willie Soon is and, and who he was as a, a scientist or who he is as a scientist? Yeah, Willie Soon is a, a, a very unique case study in how the climate denial machine operates. 
uh, soon is a an aeronautical engineer who declares himself an astrophysicist. He works for something called the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, which has very little to do with Harvard University except that it sits on its campus. It is uh, funded through the Smithsonian Institution, which is a quasi-public scientific institution running museums and, and scientific research in the country, funded by taxpayers. So, so Willie Soon is has been for mo- much of his career since the 1990s uh, confronting climate science directly, and his thesis is that uh, solar variation has more to do with the trends we're seeing in temperature or in a variation in the Earth's climate than greenhouse gases or forcing by greenhouse gases. So he has repeated this thesis. He has published papers about it. He has uh, proselytized on this around the world and in the media and in scientific literature uh, for almost two decades. One of his allies at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics was Sally Balyunas, who was also involved in multiple think tanks who were promoting this counter-narrative on climate change, uh, the George Marshall Institute, for example. And, you know, of course, here you have two PhD scientists at an institution with a great name, Harvard Smithsonian, and it was a very useful tool for the oil industry to have. And we've slowly revealed that they were being paid during from 2000 on almost entirely, if not entirely, through fossil fuel funding. And we just found all this out in the last few years, and we've slowly revealed it. The investigation this year had a breakthrough where we got a hold of not only the funding dollar amounts, but the contracts with the funders. So we have the communication between Willie Soon and his funders and between the Smithsonian and these corporate funders, showing them what he was doing with their money. And what he was bragging about was all these peer-reviewed studies that he had published about everything from the Indian monsoon to sunspots to uh, you name it, not all of them on specifically on the subject of climate change, but all of them with elements of doubt about the scientific consensus. And in those papers, most importantly, he did not declare that funding his source of funding for the research. So he's telling the corporations, here's what I did for you, but he's not telling the world I was paid by a company to do this. And that that problem uh, ended up on the front page of the New York Times and other outlets. And these these papers that he did, even even though they were often in areas that he had very dubious credentials in, they were held up uh, by you know very prominent people like James Inhofe, uh, a U.S. senator who denies climate change is a problem, and uh, other places. Like they they got a lot of uh, attention. Well, absolutely, they have weight. I mean, this is back to the you know the the thing that matters is science drives policy. So if you have science that, you know, says there's no problem, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a myth, you're going to hold it up. And Inhofe and other policymakers on the Hill regularly would use Willie Soon as an example of uh, a countervailing force to the IPCC or to the scientific consensus. Soon himself came to testify. He also reports to his funders that he helped prepare testimony for another scientist to come testify on the Hill. And he's regularly held up as uh, part of this other team of scientists who doesn't agree with the overwhelming consensus. And that is one of the tools used by James Inhofe and other climate denial uh, elected officials to slow down the policy arena. 
And can you give me a, just an idea of like what what it's like to to read these emails? I mean, is it is it as um, blunt as as it sounds like it is? Like say like from Exxon or or from so and so to him saying, you know, yes, you delivered on these these papers. Yeah, I mean, they're all online. Um, you can find our investigation on climateinvestigations.org, and we uh, we have all the emails uh, linked there. But it's it's a a, a series of uh, interchanges that's fairly deliberate. One one Exxon email back to him says, you know, just to be clear on your proposal, this you mean peer-reviewed literature, right? He uses another word. So they're, they're cl- it's pretty clear that they know what they're getting for their money. And... You know, and then the uh, the other documents that are really damning are these contracts written between the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics and the corporations to get the money. And they talk about the deliverables that are going to be uh, uh, done on the grant. And I don't know if you've ever uh, applied for a grant, but you you have to tell them what you're going to do, and then you have to report what you did, or you don't get any more money. So not exactly the scientific method. No, it's a little different. And and uh, Willie Soon was a, is a great example of how this this whole mechanism works. And I think it's probably the tip of the iceberg on what's really going on. But we got a we got a window in uh, through these documents that we recovered. So things are really heating up with the climate debate. I mean, we're leading into Paris, and it's getting more coverage in the media. More people are talking about it. And of course, the the incentives for the oil companies are also really making themselves apparent. It, it's clear that there's a lot of a lot of interest involved, and it's coming to a head, or it seems to be coming to a head. I mean, w- looking forward, what should we look out for in terms of the people trying to sow doubt? Are they going to have to go about it in different ways now that we understand some of the methods that they've used before? Uh, don't underestimate the other team. They are vicious and very active and very aggressive. So they're not done at all. They, in fact, are ramping up towards Paris. We've got some foreshadowing from several groups that they are sending teams to Paris. There, uh, one group is already bragging about how it's trolling around Brussels and in various state capitals trying to undermine national commitments and sow doubt you know, within the, the policy arena in various European countries. Uh, this is not just a U.S. problem. It's global. And we, you know, we know that they know that Paris, if it's successful, will be a major step forward. And so the coal industry is very aggressively trying to intervene. Various other interests that the oil industry and, and utilities are intervening at the national level. We also know that, you know, the, the Pope, you didn't mention, but, you know, the, the, the Pope's message on climate change is drawing massive attacks from multiple think tanks, the same think tanks that the Koch's fund and that other corporations fund are confronting the Pope's message, moral message about climate change with a lot of venom because that's an even stronger message than just a pure environmentalist message. It talks about, you know, the moral obligation to solve this problem. And, you know, so they're taking that on, uh, there's some deniers who are putting out films in the fall, trying to counter it with with uh, multimedia. Uh, we're standing, you know, watching brief right now, just watching their every move, and you know, we think we have a pretty good idea of what they have in mind. But they are again very motivated, and uh, 
also fighting a bit of the last fight here. They know, and they and some of them have stated that if things go well this year, uh, we've you know they they managed to screw things up in Copenhagen with Climate Gate with the you know the leaked emails and. Uh, that that agreement got derailed and weakened by various forces, but now you know this is another moment towards Paris, and and then we're into a presidential election here in the U.S. We may or may not get a better climate champion than Obama, uh, you know, and that slows us down or enables the U.S. to continue to lead. Other countries like Australia have terrible leadership right now. Canada, um, so there's a lot of obstacles to getting towards sanity on climate policy. The corporations are in it for the long haul and they know that every year they can delay action is another year of profits. So it's, it's a broad fight, but you know, my, my mission is to try to reveal these things and show, show the world who's, who the obstacles are. <laughs> so uh, it's kind of job security for me, unfortunately. Well, Kurt Davies, uh, I appreciate the, the work you're doing. You certainly will have a busy few months and a year or two going towards the election. Thanks for joining me today. Um, you're very welcome. Anytime, Kevin. That was my conversation with Kurt Davies, Executive Director at the Climate Investigation Center. And that's all for this episode of The Elephant. This episode was made possible with funding by the CKAA a European society of entrepreneurs, scientists, students, professionals, and policy officers working to create a climate-resilient society. Find out more at ckaa.eu. The Elephant Podcast is put together by myself, Kevin Kainers, and executive producer, Matthias Goetz. You can find The Elephant online at elephantpodcast.org and give us a shout on Twitter. Our handle is at elephantpodcast. If you like the show, you could help us out by recommending it to a friend. Or if you use iTunes, if you could take a second and write us a review, it would be a big help. I'm Kevin Kaners. See you in two weeks' time.